Good morning, everyone. Welcome on this rainy Sunday morning. Thank you for getting out. There are handouts in the back if you would like to follow on, like usual. And Lydia just informed me that the completed versions of the prior weeks are now on the website, so thank you, Lydia, for doing that. Uh, if you would like to refer to those past um, weeks. So, we're in week four of our Attributes of God study, and I, I hope this has been a valuable um, time for you. I know it has been for me in preparation, um, that you've learned something along the way, uh, and more importantly, you've been challenged or encouraged by God's Word uh, as you contemplate His attributes. So before we get started, let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we praise you for being our great and glorious God. You're perfectly holy, just, wise, gracious, merciful, and loving, all-powerful and sovereign. I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to your truth this morning, that we may know you better and that we would be changed to be more like you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Today we're going to continue a couple more attributes, his incommunicable attributes, those that are not shared with his creation, uh, and that is his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, and his sovereignty. So as you can probably imagine, these attributes are related to one another, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we, as we move along. Remember, as we consider these attributes all of the other attributes that we've covered are in full operation. Um, and remember that attribute that we briefly covered of his simplicity. We don't separate him out into parts. Rather, his single essence is all of his attributes. So, for example, when we say God is sovereign, he is immutably sovereign, right? His sovereignty never changes. Uh, he's all-knowingly sovereign in his omniscience. And he's sovereign everywhere in his omnipresence. So they all work together. So with these attributes we're covering today, we could say that God is omnipotently sovereign. And he's sovereignly omnipotent. Right? So when we approach these attributes of God in this way, uh, we'll have a more accurate understanding of him. Uh, it, that's more biblically sound. It can help us from wandering off into false ideas of God which we are prone to do. So this first attribute this morning that we'll cover is God's omnipotence. And I've described it here as God's ability to do anything consistent with his nature. God's ability to do anything consistent with his nature. So number one, God is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. He possesses unlimited power. It, there's no power in the universe that he does not have. Uh, being all-powerful, God does everything without difficulty or struggle. Uh, and he never gets tired like you and I do, very frequently. Uh, remember, he's immutable, so he never loses strength, and he never needs to gain it back. Uh, Genesis 18:14, God says to Abraham regarding Sarah, having a son in her old age, is anything too difficult for the Lord? A rhetorical question, right? The answer is no. Also, being all-powerful, God can never be thwarted by anything or anyone else. 
Steve Lawson says, there can be no successful resistance against his purpose. Any lesser power used by his creatures is simply temporarily on loan from God. That puts God in his proper place. In Scripture, we find multiple references to God's omnipotence. God tells Abram in Genesis 17.1, I am God Almighty. The word God Almighty here is El Shaddai. Shaddai means mountain, which pictures him standing on a mountain as the Almighty One. Genesis 28.3, Isaac calls him God Almighty. In Genesis 35, God declares to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Jeremiah 10.6, Jeremiah declares God's power compared to idols. He says, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Daniel 2.20, Daniel praises God, saying, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. We see this term almighty used also in Revelation uh, chapter 4, verse 8, when the four living creatures are continually praising God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, all God, the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So, Scripture tells of no one else possessing such power other than God himself. But number two, God is all-creating. He's all-creating. In the first verses of the Bible, we clearly see God's power at work in creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke the universe into existence without difficulty. Augustine calls this the divine fiat or the divine imperative. Fiat means let it be done. God spoke and it happened. Psalm 36 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Isaiah forty-eight thirteen. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand together. And Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arms. Nothing is too difficult for you. Thomas Watson said, to create requires infinite power. All the world c- cannot make a fly. God's power in creating is evident because he needs no instruments to work with. He can work without tools because he needs no matter to work upon. He creates matter and then works upon it. it he's the supreme creator. The in, 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 in his infinite power and in his wisdom... He created all things to a level of detail and complexity and beauty that still baffles the brightest minds today. So number three, God is all-sustaining. So he's not only all-powerful and all-creating, he's also all-sustaining in his power. He upholds it all. This is not like Atlas holding the world on his shoulder as it's some heavy burden. Uh, it's, it's also not where God created the universe and then stepped away to let it run on its own. That's deism. No, uh, God is actively involved in sustaining his creation. Colossians 1.17, Paul says of Christ, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. 
So he upholds all creation by his word. And then all the laws of nature are established and they're maintained by him. So he's not only the creator, but he's the sustainer. Number four, God is all controlling. He is all controlling. God controls everything that happens in the course of history to fulfill his purposes. We'll talk more about this in our uh, next attribute of God's sovereignty, but I think it's important to make sure that we understand from his power that he is all controlling in his omnipotence. By his power, he raises up world rulers and puts them on their thrones. He takes them down by his power. Daniel 2.21 says, It is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. Jesus tells Pilate, John 19.11, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. God moves all things forward by his infinite power. Number five, God is all victorious. He is all victorious. He's always triumphant in the face of any opposition. After God drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, Moses praises God, Exodus 15, 6. He says, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Turn over to Psalm 2 with me. Psalm chapter 2. And here, the psalmist, which I believe is likely David here, describes God's reaction to those who take a stand against the Lord. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The victory is always the Lord's. Nothing can thwart him. Psalm 98.1 says his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. And this also goes for the Holy Spirit himself who indwells believers. John, 1 John 4.4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Right? So we have a victorious helper and an advocate within us as believers, those who have trusted in Christ. He's immeasurably greater than the ruler of this age, and nothing can defeat him. So number six, God is all-saving. He is all-saving. Among all the facets of God's omnipotence, perhaps none is more glorious than this, is it not? He's mighty to save sinners from his wrath. He alone, in his power, is responsible for bringing the, his elect to faith in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew nineteen twenty six about entering the kingdom of God, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are impossible. Ephesians 2, 5 says that even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is his power at work. Divine omnipotence can cause spiritually blind eyes to see the truth. Number seven, 
God is all strengthening. He is all strengthening. The, the limitless power of God is also at work within every believer, right? providing strength to live the Christian life. And this power comes from nowhere else. John fifteen five, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It is his power alone. It, it, and this power is provided through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. Remember Acts 1 8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You will receive power. And when we realize how weak we are, we can learn from what Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 12 when God says, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That's not the same omnipotent power that God has, but it is power that he provides us sufficiently to live for him. Paul prays multiple times that believers would be strengthened by the Lord. Ephesians 3.16, to be strengthened with the power through his spirit. Colossians 1.11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. 2 Timothy 1.7, he tells Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So this, this power is available to all believers to, fu- to fulfill what he's called us to do. Right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, you, you may be asking, well, if God is omnipotent, why did he rest on the seventh day of creation? And it's very clear it says that in Genesis 2 2. First of all, that verse does not say that God needed to rest, right? It just says that he did rest. He didn't say, my back is sore and I need, to, I need, I need the rest. Uh, Genesis 2.2 2 says, By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Isaiah 40.28 says, The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. So this word for rest that we see in Genesis 2.2 2 is Shabbat, it, it, where the idea of Sabbath comes from. It, it indicates the idea to stop or to cease. So, after six days, God was finished with his creation and saw that it was good, so he stopped. It it was not because he was tired, otherwise it would violate his attribute of immutability, right? So, this verse indicates cessation of work, not a reinvigoration after work. It was a pattern for his people to follow. Second question, is there really nothing God cannot do? Remember the children's song, My God is So Great? Remember those? Remember, my God is so great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do? Well, the first part of that is really solid, I will say. But what about that second part of that verse? Is there really nothing God cannot do? But 
you know, what about the proverbial question you may have heard, could God build a rock so big that he could not move it? Well, I mean, if we respond yes, then we're declaring that there's something God cannot do, which, you know, like move the rock. So if we respond no, then we're not declaring, are we not declaring there are limits to his power, right? So this is a philosophical question, I admit. But this idea of the omnipotence of God is typically used in a theological context, right? Not in an absolute sense. Otherwise, God could do things like contradict himself. He could lie. He could suffer. Right? He could die. It, it, this pushes this idea of omnipotence to the level of, of absurdity at that point, And he's no longer God. Uh, Thomas Aquinas and others have put it this way. It's better to say such things cannot be done than to say that God cannot do them, it, it, so as to remove any notion of weakness uh, in God and more to the impossibility of those things by his nature. So I think Sproul addresses this really well. I included this quote. The normal meaning of omnipotence is that God has absolute power over his creation. He rules his creation. The creation does not rule him. God has the entire universe under his control. He cannot stop acting consistently with his nature. So, just as God cannot lie, Hebrews 6, 8, Titus 1, 2, he cannot do anything that is contrary to his nature or that subverts his power over his creation. God cannot stop being God. So, I've, I've included a few takeaways here on the uh, attribute of omnipotence. Number one, God's omnipotence allows him to accomplish his sovereign will. Whatever God intends, he has the power to bring it out, about. We may have a goal or a dream personally to do something, but sometimes we don't have the power to bring it about. But that's not so with God. Everything within his sovereign will he has the power to accomplish it. Uh, Stephen Charnock said, His power is as great as his will. That is, whatsoever can fall within the verge or the edge of his will falls within the compass of his power. And he also said, His power as well as his wisdom gives him a right to govern. God has the most right to govern because he has knowledge to direct his power and power to execute the results of his wisdom. Perfect power, perfect wisdom, perfect sovereignty. Here we see this importance of the fact that God is not just all-powerful, but also all-wise and all-loving. If not, he would be oppressive or abusive in his use of power. Number two, as believers, no matter what obstacles we face, we can be sure God will provide all-sufficient power for us to follow him. Nothing is beyond his ability to deliver according to his will, even for us individually. Uh, recognizing this truth should affect, affect our prayer life significantly. It, it should fill us with faith and confidence in the Lord's ability to act. A.W. Pink said this, No prayer is too hard for him to answer. No need too great for him to supply. No passion too strong for him to subdue. No temptation too powerful for him to deliver from. And no misery too deep for him to relieve. 
Remember Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? It's not. Thomas Watson said in his Body of Divinity, the strong God can conquer thy strong corruption, though sin be too hard for thee, yet not for him. His power is sufficient. Number three, God's omnipotence guarantees his promises. Scripture is filled with promises, many of which have already been fulfilled, others that will be in the future, including Christ's return and his coming kingdom. Because God is all-powerful, he has the ability to see all of that to fruition. And his promises are also personal for us. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This assumes his power and ability to complete what he promises. Number four, allow your understanding of God's omnipotence to drive you to a reverent fear of him. This could be said of all of his attributes, but it's a good reminder here for us. Fear of God is different between believers and unbelievers. For the unbeliever, it's a fear of his judgment and his wrath. But for the believer, it's different. We respond in reverence and awe, in thankfulness and worship. Hebrews 12, 28, 29 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We're to have reverence and awe for a God. And that should be reserved for no one except for God himself. And this should be our attitude of worship. We can be awed by nature and many other things in this world. But we should have a greater awe of the God who created it. Okay, that is God's omnipotence. And I'm sure I didn't do it complete justice, but we need to move on. So let's move over to God's sovereignty. His sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is such a foundational truth of Christianity. And most Christians would be quick to agree that the, the fact that God is sovereign most would agree, right? The way I've defined it here is God's undisputed right to govern all that he has created. Undisputed right to govern all that he's created. By his own will, he has supreme authority or reign over everything in the universe, including events and outcomes. Um, as mentioned earlier, God's sovereignty is related to his omnipotence, but it's distinguished from it. His omnipotence is his ability or strength or power to affect all of his purposes, while his sovereignty is his authority, right, or prerogative to do what he pleases. A, a related term for God's sovereignty is dominion, uh, which means supreme authority in control. So if we want to boil it down into single words, God's omnipotence relates to his power and his, while his sovereignty relates to his authority. Here are several 
truths to examine regarding God's sovereignty. Number one, God is supreme. He is supreme. God's reigns, rules over all that exists. David declares in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. God's the greatest and highest in power, rank, and authority and shares it with no one else. 1 Timothy 6.15 says, He is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A a common symbol of supreme authority is a throne. Uh, Scripture frequently mentions God on His throne. Psalm 47.8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Isaiah 66.1, God says, Heaven is my throne. Hebrews 4.16, it says we are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In several places in the Psalms, we see the phrase, the Lord reigns. Psalm 93, 96, 97, 99. Each time this is used, it's in the present tense, meaning that he's currently reigning. He's immutable. He reigned from eternity past. He's reigning today, and he will continue to reign. This makes sense, given that immutability. He's always reigned, and he will forever. Because of this, it should drive us to have a reverent awe and fear of him. Psalm 99.1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Turn over to Daniel 4 with me. Daniel chapter 4. This is the account of Nebuchadnezzar who learned the lesson of God's sovereignty the hard way, did he not? God humbled him from being a powerful king uh, to dwelling as a beast. Daniel chapter 4. We'll start over in verse 30. Verses uh, 30 through 32. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. God said that Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty had been removed. Earthly sovereignty is subordinate to divine sovereignty. We saw a new king coronated over the weekend in England. That sovereign reign is subordinate to God's sovereign reign. Now, after Nebuchadnezzar's reason returned to him, he goes on to say over in verses 34 and 35, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High 
and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to, to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is supreme in his sovereignty. Number two, God is predeterminer. He is predeterminer. In infinity past, God not only existed, but he was also the architect of his eternal decree that encompasses everything that comes to pass. Paul tells us Ephesians 1.11, that believers have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. The, the counsel here is not anything outside of God, but an all-wise deliberation within himself. The creation we know is not the output of some random set of circumstances. It's exactly what God intended in his perfect wisdom and his power. His purpose is executed perfectly. He predestined it before time began. Now, included in the eternal plan of God is also the salvation of his elect. His choice was made in eternity past. Paul says, Ephesians 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. His choice was made by no one else but our supreme sovereign God. He didn't make his choice conditional on whether people would believe or not. Ephesians 1.5 tells us his choice was made according to the kind intention of his will, demonstrating his love. Now, this does not remove our responsibility of preaching the gospel and urging people to repent and believe in Christ for salvation. That is very clear. But it does remind us of who's ultimately in control. Number three, God is creator. Uh, Now, earlier we covered God's creation as an an expression of his omnipotence. Creation is a great example where God demonstrates both his omnipotence and his sovereignty. He didn't only create it out of his power. It's a demonstration of his ongoing reign and rule over creation. Psalm 104, 24 says, O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. And in the New Testament, we learn more of the role of Christ in creation. Right? Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. This act of creating by divine fiat was a spectacular display of God's sovereignty. Number four, God is executor. He is executor. He's not only sovereign in creation, he's also sovereign in the ongoing execution of his eternal decree. Everything occurs according to his plan. A term that can be used here is his providence. By his providence, he carries out his sovereign decree. His providence is the outworking of his sovereignty. Turn over to Isaiah 46. This is the last place I'll have you turn today, I promise. Isaiah 46, verse 1. 
Isaiah 46. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah comparing himself to false idols. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. He says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. From Genesis through Revelation, we see that God is presiding over all events of history. Uh, from the original sin of Adam, even though God is not the author of sin, it, it was a part of his divine plan. He was not caught off guard. We have to remember that. He ruled over the worldwide flood and the dispersing of the nations from the Tower of Babel. He called Abram out of paganism and formed the nation of Israel. He reigned over the Egyptian bondage of the Israelites and their exodus and their wanderings and guided them to the promised land. He oversaw the exile of Judah and Israel to Babylon and Assyria and brought them back. And with supreme authority, sent his son Jesus Christ into the world delivered him over to death on a cross to bear the sins of his people, all in his sovereignty. He commissioned the apostles and directed them to spread of his kingdom. And to this present time, he's governing over all things. He's causing everything providentially to work together for the good of his people. Number five, God is meticulous. He is meticulous. God not only orchestrates the big events of history, but he also cares for the smallest details. He determines the day of everyone's birth and sets the number of their days until their death. Job 14.5 says, Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. No one will live beyond the time God has appointed for them, regardless of what we do in the process. David recognizes this well. He writes in Psalm 139, 16, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. There's another term here to describe God's sovereignty. He ordains our days. That's God's sovereignty in action. And not only does he control the span of our lives, he rules over the details of our lives too. The Proverbs 16.9, the, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Steve Lawson says, the smallest occurrences in a person's life are but small threads woven by God into the larger tapestry of his predetermined plan. So, he is meticulous in his sovereignty over us personally. Number six, God is overruling. He is overruling. 
God is determined to execute His sovereign will regardless of any resistance that is mounted against Him. That can come from Satan or people that are opposed to Him, but God will not be thwarted from accomplishing His eternal decree. As we've said before, God does not have a plan B. He has a plan A, and it's still working out. Psalm 33, 10-11 says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Even the most powerful rulers on earth cannot divert God's purposes. They even do His bidding. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of our Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. Number seven, God is completing. He is completing. God is sovereign over creation in all events in history. He will also ensure everything is directed to its appointed end, its goal. He's already predetermined what will happen, and he'll ensure that his plan is completed accordingly. This is not only for individuals, but also for kingdoms and nations. He'll put world leaders in their place. And they'll play their divinely assigned roles. Revelation 17, 17 says, For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purposes. So in his sovereignty, God will bring human history to its consummation, including the return of Christ and all the events that we read about in Revelation. It all rests in the hands of God, and that should be comforting to us. Number eight, God is ultimate. He is ultimate. When we get to the end of Revelation, after all things are consummated, God's reign continues, and there will be no end to it. He'll sit on his throne and exercise his supreme authority forever. Believers from every nation, tribe, peoples, and tongues, both small and great, will join that multitude in praising God. Revelation 19.6, which says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, I've listed a couple questions here in the you may be asking section. These are not necessarily easy questions, but I chose to put them in here anyway. I'll do my best. First, if God is sovereign, does it really matter what people do? This is this classic challenge of understanding God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Sometimes it's referred to as God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. But that's not a good way to look at it. These are not contradictory. It may be mysterious, but even difficult to understand, but not a contradiction. God is sovereign, but all people are responsible for their actions. And they're held accountable for their choices. Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. People are free to make choices, but those choices are ultimately subject to God's sovereignty. And will ultimately serve his purposes. Even though it may not look like it in the immediate. We don't have ultimate free will or self-determination. Only God has that. Also, Any righteous choices that we make are because of God's grace to enable us to do that. 
including our decision to repent and believe in the gospel. I think R.C. Sproul put it really eloquently here. He says, God is sovereign, man is free. Man's freedom is limited, however, by God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is not limited by man's freedom. This is simply to say that man is not God. God is free, and man is free, but God is more free than man. Man's freedom is always and everywhere subordinate to God's freedom. Just like kingdoms and rulers are subordinate to the sovereign God of the universe, we are as well in the choices that we make. Second question, if God is sovereign, why is there evil in the world? Now, this same question is frequently expanded to include other things like pain and suffering, right? bad things. Since God allows the existence of evil, pain and suffering, some may want to call into question uh, his omnipotence or his goodness. Now, as we discussed earlier and read in Ephesians 1, God's plan of salvation was established before the foundation of the world. Now, since God planned the death of Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, he must have planned for sinners to be redeemed. Which meant that he must have put into his plan the allowance for sinners to fall. Otherwise, there would be no need for a Savior. He created the world knowing that he would redeem it. And while he allowed evil to exist, he's not the author of it. That's the responsibility of his creatures. Now, while I can't completely understand why he did this, why he allowed evil to exist, we can be sure of this. God is sovereign over evil. He has the power to defeat it and will eventually do that in completion. Secondly, God uses all things, including evil, to bring glory to himself. John MacArthur summarized it this way, The presence of evil in the world lets God display the fullness of his nature, both in his anger, his righteousness, his holiness, his wrath, and his judgment, and all that side, as well as his mercy and compassion and grace on the other side. And he has a right to put himself on full display in order that he might be forever glorified for the God that he is. This is a very hard thing. But we have to look to the truth of what Scripture tells us. Uh, Many years ago, a good friend of ours was killed in a car accident. And he left behind a wife and three young children. And as we were mourning that tragedy, someone in ministry leadership told me, and I'm sure this person had good intentions. This person said, it was just a case where our friend slipped through the fingers of God. As if it were somehow out of God's control. As hard as it may be to accept at times, the truth of God's sovereignty tells us that nothing slips through the fingers of God. Nothing. So some takeaways here in sovereignty real quick. Number one, be comforted knowing that God is always in control regardless of your circumstances. Right? You're familiar with Romans 8.28, right? A promise for believers. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
All things work for good. But there's more. When I recall this verse, I always like to include verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So for believers, God uses all things to make us more like Christ. Everything about God's sovereignty over the believer's life is with his good intent and plan. No accidents, mistakes, or surprises. He's both planned and is currently working good for his children. We can rest and have peace of soul in the sovereign goodness of our God. People who fret about the future need to reflect on God's sovereignty. Charles Spurgeon said, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. Number two, in recognition of God's sovereignty, we are to submit to him with thankfulness and obedience. This is a very practical way to glorify God. Thomas Watson said, He is God and has a sovereignty over us. Therefore, as we received life from him, so we must receive a law from him and submit to his will in all things. This is, a kiss. This is to kiss him with a kiss of loyalty, and it is to glorify him as God. By his grace, he will allow us to do that. Number three, rejoice knowing that God's sovereignty will ensure the success of his church. God is not only sovereign over nations. He's not only sovereign over individual lives. He's sovereign over his church. Steve Lawson says, no matter how dark the world scene may become, nothing will prevent Jesus from successfully executing his worldwide mission of building his church. His overruling sovereignty guarantees its its success. So in closing, when we think of God's omnipotence and his sovereignty, it should help us better understand the majesty and the awesomeness of our God. We can praise God like David does in Psalm 145.3. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. While there's things we don't completely understand, we don't, necessarily, we don't know what tomorrow holds, we do know who holds the future, right? And that he holds us fast. May we exclaim like the great multitude in Revelation 19.6, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed almighty. You reign over heaven and earth. Nothing has ever thwarted your power and authority. Nothing ever will. And for that, we praise you and we thank you. Thank you for your creating and sustaining power and most of all for your power and sovereignty and salvation through the substitutionary sacrifice of your son, Jesus. I pray that you would fill our hearts with reverence and awe as we continue to worship you this morning. And it's Christ's name that we pray. Amen.